What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And you're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, Eon or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondatoz.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast with me, Tom Wheatley, and my co-hosts, Tom Butler. Hello. And Brendan Duffy. Hello. And it's a it's a big one for the podcast today because we finally moved off of the letter C, which seems like it's been going on, or it has been going on for about what three months. It's we started releasing the episodes in April, yeah, and um, yeah. So yeah, it may not sound if you're a listener listening to this, it may not sound like a big thing, but for us, moving on to the letter D is a remarkable experience, and it's it's been a joy to to research just <laughs> just because we've got a new letter, uh, which is a bit depressing, but. Um, we're on the D's now. Just we're, say we're pretty excited. That's no slight on the letter C. No. No, the, the C's it's were... Just lengthy. Good. They were just a bit of a slog yeah. for, for to research. We, we were desperate to move on to those next pages of the encyclopedias. So, in this episode, we have a bit of a mixed bag. We've got um, uh, character from um, For Your Eyes Only. We have one of the writers of uh, a really quite prolific writer from one of the films we're talking about dan jack um we'll be talking about dario who is a fairly impressive henchman from um the dalton era we'll be talking about peter davis the editor and anthony dawson so are we ready to go on with the show d is for dal bb dal and Bibi Dahl is one of probably the most, I would say, criticised characters throughout the whole of the Bond series. You'll remember her as the young ice skater that appears in For Your Eyes Only. Um, and her role in For Your Eyes Only, it's, it's, um, it's a bit of a strange, convoluted role, if you ask me. She plays kind of like a... Uh, she plays well. She's meant to play a sixteen-year-old. That's never actually said. Roger mentions that in um, his biography. But she, uh, the actress who played her, Lynn Holly Johnson, was twenty-two at the time. Uh, her character is a an ice skater who is sponsored by Christastos, who's of course the the main baddie in that film. And it's kind of like a front. It's kind of he's this ice skating sponsor, but really it's a a cover for all of his other nefarious dealings that that are going on. But her role in the in the film is quite a strange one, really, and there's a lot of aspects of it that she's she's in a lot of the film, and she kind of plays the the role of 
a very young lady. And it seems like the bulk of it is so that Roger can make a consistent string of jokes about the fact that she's young. He makes a lot of jokes about her being young. And her character is almost like, she's like a bit of a sex pest to Roger. So he's like this suave spy and she's constantly trying to seduce him. She's There's a scene where she's in bed naked and he comes in. And Roger is not having any of it. He's, he's At any opportunity, he kind of pushes her off and uh, brushes her away with very, well, largely lame comments about her age all the time. But it just consists, it goes on throughout the whole of the, the film and um, never seems to have a great deal of point. She doesn't have many like fundamental roles, apart from the fact that she, because she's in the competition as an ice skater, she knows the henchmen. I can't remember the name of the henchmen, actually. You remember that one, but you've just recently watched that, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Um, no, the the name escapes me. Yeah, so, the, well, the, the, the guy who is like the multi-ski sport specialist. He's a marksman. I can't remember what the name of the sport is that that is where you shoot and you ski. But anyway, she knows him. So she's fundamental in Roger finding out who he is and what he's doing there and eventually getting hold of it and kind of solving the film's plot. Um, But apart from that, she doesn't really play a lot of... um, have an important role in it. And there's a lot of criticism of her character if you look at um, certain reviews and and what people have said about it. It's Kriegler. Um, His name's Kriegler. That's right, yeah. So just an example of one of the lines. It's uh, where at the end he says, Roger says, don't grow up anymore. The opposite sex would never survive it, (laughs) Um, which is uh, just one of the very many lines that he he feeds about that sort of thing. Uh, The actress, Lynn Holly Johnson, uh, she was was actually a a figure skater um, before she became an actress. She was a fairly successful figure skater until she became an actress. And she started her acting career... Uh, in a film in 1978 called Ice Castles, which I've never heard of, but apparently was relatively well-received at the time. It's not stood the test of time. Um, it was Golden Globe-nominated, uh, her role was, for that film. She, uh, the, the other character in that, this is the one interesting thing I found out about Ice Castles, uh, Robbie Benson, who is the voice of the Beast in Beauty and the Beast. I heard his voice in the thing, and I thought, I know that voice, and then I found out that it was... He played that role. It just tells the story of a figure skater who basically loses her sight due to an accident and then eventually comes back. Doesn't look that interesting. Definitely not going to watch it. In uh, the film, Roger Eber, he said that uh, he, he said she was an appealing young woman who actually happens to be a good skater who can act, which was quite high praise from uh, Ebert there. After that, she didn't do a great deal. She was cast in the lead role in a Disney horror film uh, drama called The Watcher in the Woods, which didn't receive very widespread release, so nobody really knows about it. And she was also in a film called Where the Boys Are in 1984, which is like a a weird sort of frat house comedy where a group of young ladies go to I think it's like a spring break to pick up men. And she I think she she yes she won the Golden Raspberry for worst supporting actress in that, and that's the only other thing she's won. Oh no, she didn't even win the other thing. So eventually in 1996, she quit uh, acting to concentrate on life of a family. Uh, and then she returned to some community theatre in 2007, but hasn't really done a lot since then. Uh, I found an interview with her about, uh, it wasn't, I don't think it was specifically about Bond, but she talks a bit about it. And she says, I wasn't scared at all about doing a Bond film. Again, I had only seen one Bond movie prior. And again, since my background was about treating work seriously, I wasn't concerned about the super production talking about cubby she says he's a very large happy gentleman who got on so well with roger the crew and me too and also interestingly she talks a little bit not a lot but mentions the fact that she met pierce on set of for your eyes only and she says at the time when i worked with cassandra and met pierce there was no idea that he could even think about trying to fill roger's shoes so i was surprised years later and that's about it for bb doll what do you you've recently watched for your eyes only but what do you think of uh, her character or her role yeah, I mean, you're right. She is a bit, um, it's quite a silly character. But I think it's interesting in that film how they sort of address Bond's age, at least yeah. Roger's age, and in an interesting way in that he refuses her advances. It's quite, kind of not what you expect from Bond, but let's not forget Roger's in his 50s at this point, and she is noticeably very young, and they have her play quite young as well. Although I think there's only a, what is it, like a year or two between her and, and the lead, Carol Bouquet. Isn't, isn't, she's only like a year older than her in real life. 
Yeah, I think. Well, her, her she was a twenty two at the time, so I imagine a lot of Bond girls were probably not far off that throughout the series. Yeah, but I, th- I don't know. I think it's interesting the way that um, that that dynamic between the characters, the, the the sort of the Bond girl that Bond rebuffs because she's too yeah. young. I don't know. It's, well, um, it's, it's Fiora's only known for the fact that obviously after the silliness of Moonraker and the fantasy of it, they wanted to get something a little bit more maybe darker and a little bit more down to earth. So probably it was a response to that to kind of humanize rogers bond a bit more but yeah. I, I always find that it, it's almost like it's it's just handled so relentlessly it's just constant references to it like you just, only did a couple in there you don't need it but she's definitely a, a character seems to be in that film far too long and get too much screen time it's a long film though it's a long film yeah so that is bb Dahl. D is for Dahl, Roald Dahl, born uh, 13th of September 1916. Roald Dahl uh, is a novelist, short story writer, poet, wartime fighter pilot and a screenwriter. You guys obviously know who Roald Dahl is, right? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Most famous for his children's book, I would say. Perhaps more esteemed here in the UK than the US, but our US listeners might tell us a bit more. I think possibly because he's British. He was born to... Norwegian parents here in the UK and oh, the context we're looking at Roald Dahl is that he was the credited screenwriter of You Only Live Twice but also interestingly uh, he was actually a contemporary of Ian Fleming's during the war and their paths crossed many times throughout their lives and they actually had quite a complex relationship with each other um, which I found really fascinating when researching about Dahl I knew Dahl quite well I think I mean anyone that's read Boy and Going Solo will have a good sense of his biography before he became a writer. So I won't spend too long talking about that. Rather just sort of talk about um, uh, his life and how it relates to, to to Fleming and You Only Live Twice. So yeah, interestingly, uh, Ian Fleming had given Roald Dahl several short story ideas over the years, including the plot to one of his most famous short stories, Lamb to the Slaughter. Are you two, got, you two familiar with that one? No. So it's a short story where a woman kills her husband using a leg of frozen lamb or a frozen leg of lamb. And then when the police come to investigate, she cooks up the leg of lamb and serves it up to the policeman to destroy the evidence. It's quite a fun, yeah. like little macabre short story. And Fleming gave Dahl that story idea along with a few others. So just start with a quote. So this is from Roald Dahl. He said, the business of making a Bond film is an exciting process. There's no question about that because they are so technically perfect and inventive and nearly all the stunts and clever things are done for real. They're not fake, you know, they're dangerous. So Roald Dahl was born in Wales uh, to Norwegian parents. His father was quite a wealthy ship broker and he left behind a fortune of £150,000, which in today's money is £4.5 million. So Dahl came from a wealthy family, basically. And actually, Dahl's father and sister died in quite close company to each other. Um, Dahl's father left in, died in 1920. Um, but you can read all about his early years in, in, in the book, Boy. When he was a teenager, he went to a school in Derbyshire called Repton School. And that was quite notorious for its, um, say, public school antics. So it was ritual cruelty and status domination and, you know, younger boys having to act as personal servants. Um, there was beatings, all that sort of stuff. It's quite a horrible old fashioned sort of school. And that sort of fed into his love of, um, you know, cruelty towards children in books, shall we say. You know, he never shied away from the from the the violence aspect of childhood. Interestingly, when he was at Repton School, the local uh, Cadbury, Cadbury Chocolate used to send them boxes of new chocolates to the school to be tested by the pupils. So that's where he got the idea from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory from. Later on, he joined the Shell Petroleum Company and posted uh, in Kenya and then later Tanzania. And then in 1939, he joined the Royal Air Force as an aircraft man. He survived a plane crash while he was on a mission. Um, he took part in quite a few air battles, some famous ones as well. But eventually he was invalided back home due to headaches being caused by the crash that he had during the war. So then he became a flight instructor 
and then he became the assistant air attaché at the British Embassy in Washington. He didn't really like the job there, apparently, but um, I think he soon grew to enjoy it. He met the writer C.S. Forrester while he was there. He was the creator of Horatio Hornblower, and he encouraged him to start writing, and he began writing stories for the British Ministry of Information. And his first children's book was The Gremlins, published in 1943. It's not connected to the Gremlins film, but it's the same sort of idea. It's little animals that cause lots of chaos. So while he was in Washington, he was supplying intelligence to MI6. And while he was there, he was working alongside Ian Fleming, Ivor Bryce, Noel Coward and David Ogilvy, and was part of a group called the Baker Street Irregulars, who Churchill saw as, as his underground army in Washington. Um, so they were sort of feeding information both ways. He was they, they were feeding information back to Churchill and then Churchill was using them to disseminate inf- information into America as well to help the war effort to move along. He said, um, my job was to help Winston to get on with FDR and help and tell Winston what was in the old boy's mind. FDR is Franklin D. Roosevelt. He left the RAF in 1946 with a, with a great record and he married the actress Patricia Neal in 1953 and they had five children together into the world of showbiz he began writing for television in 1950 and he was writing episodes for shows i had not heard of these but they, they have titles like suspense danger suspicion but also alfred hitchcock presents which we have heard of of course mm. uh, 1961 james and the giant peach was published followed by charlie and the chocolate factory in 1964 and then the magic finger in 1966 i'm assuming you guys have read those Oh, yeah. At mm-hmm. some point, yeah. 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 On to You Only Live Twice. So, Lewis Gilbert was brought in to direct You Only Live Twice, the 1967 James Bond film, replacing Terence Young. Uh, Gilbert had recently directed Michael Caine in Alfie. A writer called Sidney Bohm had, I don't know how you pronounce that, B-O-E-H-M, he had delivered a treatment based on the You Only Live Twice novel, and then Harold Jack Bloom took over. So see back to the episode about Harold Jack Bloom that we did many, many weeks ago for more information on him. Bloom was then replaced by Roald Dahl. Um, it's not really clear how, how he came to be, but he was developing a film with Robert Altman at United Artists. So he was within that atmosphere. But uh, in John Cork, a friend of the show in the book, Nobody Does It Better, said that Ivor Bryce, who was Ian Fleming's friend, had recommended Roald Dahl for the gig because Cubby had reached out to Ivor Bryce because he'd read that Ivor Bryce had hard feelings over what had happened with Thunderball because I think Ivor Bryce was a close friend of Ian Fleming's and he thought that Cubby and Harry had done Ian Fleming's legacy a dirty by teaming up with Kevin McClory to make the Thunderball film. So Cubby reached out to Ivor to make amends and Ivor said, look, to make amends, can you hire Roald Dahl to, to write the next film? Because he was, Roald Dahl was struggling financially at that time. I think his books were doing okay, but they weren't massive. So interestingly, when he took the call from Cubby Broccoli, he said he really hadn't heard of him. I thought he was joking. After all, a man with the last name of a vegetable. <laughs> he told Cubby that he, hadn't, he wasn't really a James Bond fan and that he'd only seen Goldfinger. And they basically sent him a projector with all the other films to watch straight away. And he said this was the first small hint I was to get of the swift, swift, efficient, expansive way in which the Bond producers operated. So terms were agreed with Roald Dahl then and he began working straight away with Lewis Gilbert. And Lewis Gilbert, I think, thought he was an interesting choice for a James Bond film. But I think his sort of grasp of fantasy and dark twists and things like that, I think we're quite a good fit for James Bond really in truth he had a very good sort of sense of dark humour which I think comes through in um, in You Only Live Twice interestingly Roald Dahl was not a fan of the book You Only Live Twice he called it Tired Bad Ian's Worst Book and he said he only really did the job for the money he said have you guys read You Only Live Twice recently? No 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 I mean it's a very Blofeldy book obviously one of the books in the Blofeld trilogy but um he said, Roald Dahl said, You Only Live Twice was the only Fleming book that had no, virtually no semblance of a plot that could be made into a movie. The concept of Blofeld patrolling his garden of poisonous plants in a med- medieval suit of armour, lopping off heads of half-blinded Japanese was ridiculous. So when I began writing the script, I only retained about four or five of the original novel story ideas. Those ideas were that it was going to take place in Japan, 
They kept Blofeld, they kept Tiger Tanaka and Kissy Suzuki and also the ninjas as well, which sort of come into the into the film later on. He said, you've got your hero ready made for you. The hard thing was to get a credible plot without going into science fiction. That is the pitfall. Do you think he did get a credible plot out of Ewing Live Twice? Yeah, I, I think the plot is... I think a lot of the issues with the film come from the way it's been done. I think the plot's mm. actually quite... As we know, Bond films, it's it's almost like the Carbon original of a lot of, of how it's progressed over time. I think it's quite an important film for that. But I, I think I think the story works really well. It's not too fantastical. Yeah, I think yeah. the stuff in space and the volcano and stuff, maybe. I think this is the start of it going really OTT, yeah. isn't it? I actually think also it didn't help with what happened 30 years later with Austin Powers because so much of it was parodied. And I, I think if you look back now, it's like because you, you can see it. It, yes, it makes yeah. it seem more ridiculous because of that. So he only had eight weeks to deliver his first draft and then he had to do another one uh, four weeks after that. And then he had to have complete the script within 20 weeks. Uh, he talks about having conferences with um, Harry and Cubby and he said Harry would usually nod off to sleep in the middle. So the stuff from Bloom's material that made it through into the uh, Dahl script was the volcano lair. And then he was also instructed to include the Bond dying and then being buried at sea in the pre-title sequence but it was Roald Dahl's idea that they put some of it in space he felt like it was the only only place the films had left to go another thing that he was instructed to put into the script was Little Nelly which obviously is the flying like helicopter vehicle that was after uh, Cubby had seen it on TV or radio heard it on radio I think I would have expected that was Dahl's idea. No, no, that was something that they discovered and, and the producers uh, demanded he put it in. So mm. so he delivered the final script and Harry and Cubby thought it was great, but Roald Dahl called it the biggest load of bullshit I've ever put my hand to. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> But yeah, it just ramps up the fancy elements just to a whole, a whole other level. Famously, we've talked about this before, but Dahl wrote about You Only Live Twice in 1967 in Playboy magazine. I don't know if you remember this where he described the Bond girl formula yeah, about the three girls, no more, no less. Girl number one is pro-Bond, girl number two is anti-Bond, um, and girl number three is violently pro-Bond and she stays until the end. I mean, that's there's a much longer version of that out there, but that that's that's comes from Dahl, but he was instructed that, that, that formula by Harry and Cubby. So during the production, Dahl went to the set in Japan with his wife Patricia, who was recovering from a stroke, and he was very impressed with what he saw. He said it was a very well-oiled machine by then. You also had the feeling that they had the money in the bank and they were going to make a fortune. So no money was spared in the making of it. You went everywhere by helicopter. Quite an interesting story where Dahl found Connery and the crew all sat around relaxing in kimonos after having having a swim. And Dahl called them a strange motley crew. Connery then looked at Dahl and said, well, you rolled like an English arsehole in your khaki shorts, or to be precise, a Norwegian arsehole. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Connery, not popular one to, guy on set. Yeah, <laughs> not one to mince his words. Talking about Connery, Dahl later said, I don't think Sean behaved very well on this film. He was a very foolish fellow to get bored by Bond because it made him, it made his life and it made him his fame. If it had been me, I wouldn't have got big headed and gone off and said, I'm going to do my own thing now. You can go to hell. I would have stuck with them and seen it through, not let them hire some other actor. So I don't know whether there were sour grapes between the two because he called him a Norwegian Mm. arsehole. But um, (laughs) this was the film that really, um, yeah, we talked about this in length of Connery, but really peed Connery off, didn't it? And it was his last Bond Mm. film until he came back twice. So although the film was a success and, you know, the relationship was okay, they 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 actually Cubby retained his services to write Chitty Chitty Bang Bang based on the Ian Fleming novel. This was a year later, but this did not go well at all for Roald Dahl or for Cubby. They both fell out on on this. Uh, in 1977, Roald Dahl told the New York Times they took my script and never used a word, um, adding that that was the directors are the writers' curse. And then in a later interview, he uh, he told Twilight Zone magazine, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was ghastly. Once you get a rotten director or an egocentric director, you're dead. But they pay you a lot, so you take the money and run. Cubby, in his um, opinion of the film or the script, called it a piece of shit. (laughs) And he didn't even invite Roald Dahl to the premiere uh, where where they were having a royal premiere and he would have met the Queen. Dahl wrote in a letter to his agent, I don't give a damn whether we met the royal family or not. 
all I care about was Cubby's behaviour um, and the way that he'd been treated. So interestingly, Roald Dahl was the one who created Vulgaria and the child catcher in Chitty Bang Bang, but he felt he just never got the, the due credit for it. And yeah, I think Dahl was really burned by the um, the experience on Chitty Bang Bang. He said, I've now produced two worthwhile original scripts for Cubby. And as far as I can tell, I have done nothing wrong. So that's it, really. Dahl died in 1990, having delivered some of the most famous children's books of all time. But yeah, I mean, his film screenwriting career didn't really go beyond these these films. But um, but yeah, that's that's Roald Dahl. D is for Dan Jack. I think we've covered where the name comes from uh, when we did the broccoli episode. It's the, um, the bringing together of the two wives of Cubby Broccoli and Harry Saltzman. So it's Dana Broccoli and Jacqueline Saltzman. And it's the holding company, and they're responsible for... This is very sort of legal and wordy now. <laughs> they're responsible for the, the copyright, the trademark, uh, the characters, all the material that relates to James Bond on screen. It's owned, it's managed by the Broccoli family, and along with Eon Productions... So and together they produced the James Bond films. So it's founded it in 1962, after the release of Doctor No, uh, and this ensured this was to ensure that all the future films were under this one banner and that all those rights stayed in like a, its own little bubble. And then it also began its association with United Artists in 1962 as well. I'm not going to go into massive detail because Harry Saltzman we will get his own. Uh, we'll cover him. And that's, there's a big story there with how the, his rights and his relationship with Cubby uh, ended. But in 1975, Saltzman sold his 50% share of Dan Jack to United Artists. And that was because he was having financial difficulties. I think we've touched on it before. Um, he'd made a series of bad business decisions, which meant in 1986, Cubby and Dana could buy that 50% off of United Artists. And they assumed complete and utter control of Dan Jack although this wasn't going to be the end of any of all the the legal stuff by a long way in 1990 so this was just after License to Kill License to Kill just after License to Kill and they were working on the third Dalton film Property of a Lady I think it was going to be called wasn't it is that the the title that was the rumours yeah I don't know how, how, how true that is but and there was a legal dispute that broke out and MGM had sold to Pathé their rights. They'd merged the companies together to create MGM Pathé Communications. And Dan Jack weren't happy with this. They lodged a lawsuit against the, the Pathé CEO, Giancarlo Peretti. That's, uh, that's as good as pronunciation you get in there. Uh, and he wanted to sell off all the uh, the studio's catalogue cut price low rates and just to get it out there and just to try and bulk up any sort of drum up some cash that was his plan and so Dan Jack said that this violated the licensing and that of the original agreement made in 1962 between United Artists and Dan Jack so back and forth this went on for for years and this obviously led to that massive gap between 1989 and 1995 that was a lot of a lot of this was caught a lot of it was caused by this and um, eventually uh, it was settled in December 1992, at which point Dalton's contract was up. And that will be covered in the Dalton episode. We've also touched upon it in Brosnan, what happened there. So following the death of Cubby Broccoli in 1996 and Dana in 2004, Dan Jack, control of Dan Jack was passed to Michael G. Wilson. That's, that's who is currently in charge and holds control. And with the the recent news, with Amazon, it is still unaffected because Dan Jack still have the final say. The Broccoli family, Michael G. Wilson, they will still have the final say regardless of what happened with that takeover uh, with Amazon. This still sits in place to protect that the Bond franchise and all the characters. And, and that's, that's where we're at, right up to date now, moving forward. And that's what Dan Jack do, that's who they are. There we go. Might not be the most interesting part of uh, the James on A to Z, but <laughs> a crucial part. Stuff. 
it's very crucial crucial part d is for dario just dario there's no second name it's just it's just dario (laughs) so you'll know dario from the license to kill film he's obviously played by benicio del toro i've talked about him before in in a podcast it was one where we were discussing the scariest bond villains Mm. And I picked Dario as my first one. He he plays a sort of ruthless like psycho that that works for Sanchez. What one of Sanchez? I think Sanchez has got three like henchmen underneath him, Perez and Braun. But they're a bit different than the, the normal henchmen because they're basically just a bunch of drug dealers. So they're not like the most exciting henchmen that you've got. They they don't really they're not really very distinctive. And that's largely because License to Kill is almost like I think they modelled a lot of it on sort of Miami Vice type series and stuff around at the time. So the henchmen and the villains in general are just a bunch of drug dealers. So they're not, there's no real like interesting elements to these characters. They're just normal drug dealers. But he's, Dario is probably the most interesting out of them. He is, apparently his character is kicked out of a Nicaraguan Contra. I'm not entirely sure what that is, but I'm assuming it's some sort of drug cartel for his brutality and he's found his way into Sanchez's a drug cartel um, as one of his, his chief enforcers and he's kind of defined by the fact that he is just scarily mad and he'll just do anything to people probably the most interesting scene or the most notable scene that covers that is um, Sanchez tells him to get there's a character called Lupe who's uh, he, he says to um, Dario get me his heart and Dario just takes his switchblade out and cuts out the man's heart, which you don't really get in Bond films very often. That's pretty... It's not clever. It's not like... There's no amazing visual effect to it. It's just not very nice. Brutal. And I think that's probably something that's quite common across License to Kill. It is a very gritty... uh, A lot of the deaths are not very nice. And Dario is probably the the main um, protagonist of most of that stuff because he really is quite a... um, just a dangerous character throughout it and he's just a dirty killer really he's not really got any other skills outside of that but as i said that's Benicio del toro played that role uh, and he was only 21 at the time which made him and i think it still makes him the youngest ever bond henchman um for any of this i tried to think of any other ones that there was but i, I, I think he still is according to john glenn at the time he was hired for um his laid back while menacing style in a quirky sort of way which you kind of get, he's, he's not just a killer, he's actually quite an interesting character to watch on screen and Del Toro plays him very well. The feedback of, of the role afterwards, I've read this a few a few points, that people have said he was really good in it as an actor, not necessarily as a character or as part of the film, but as an actor he was very good. And some people said he was almost too good for that film. He, he outplayed that film. And as we know from Del Toro, he goes on to become one of the biggest stars ever really um, especially for a certain type of character so um, I think that's probably quite a key thing really that he was very good in that film but for, for Del Toro it was a massive deal at the time because he was only 21 He'd up until that point he'd done a few bits and pieces he'd largely played thugs and drug dealers which is probably why he got picked up for the for the film um, things like Miami Vice and a series called Drug Wars and he was also in the music video for uh, Madonna's song uh, La Isla Bonita which I didn't know but before License to Kill, the only thing that he'd been in was Big Top Pee Wee. So being in License <laughs> to Kill was quite a big deal for him. And obviously I'm not going to go into Del Toro's career or anything like that because that would take ages. But later on, he did appear in the 007 Legends game alongside Robert Davi. Robert Davi, yeah. Um, yeah, in, in that game. So came back again to do a bit of a Bond thing. His, his, there's not much that he's said about the role, but he is clearly... He treats it as like a really important part of his career and an amazing opportunity because you know people wait their whole lives to get an opportunity to start a Bond film and he's doing it right at the start of his career. A few bits he said about this. He said, uh, first I met Cubby Broccoli, who was the original producer, got the job. So he's talking a bit about how, when he got the role and how exciting it was for him to get the role. And he said, in my room, I had a lobby card of Thunderball. Uh, he grew up liking James Bond and suddenly pretty much did a year at college and then went on to study acting and then a year and a half later he's in a Bond movie he said it was demented so I really thought that I'd made it I don't remember but I think maybe I cleared $20,000 and I went and bought a painting for (laughs) $8,000 I thought I was going to be the next Bond and I didn't work again for a year and a half a year and a half or two after that 
So he got very excited about the role and there was a little bit of a gap after that where he didn't actually get any gigs after that. But I thought that was quite interesting. It's obviously a big part of his career and it'd be lovely to... I, I spent ages trying to find an interview where he talks a bit more about it, but he doesn't seem to actually there is um, some, discuss it that There much. is some stuff in the Licence to Kill, the making of book, but it's because I think at the time when <laughs> that film was being made, he was such a small part of it and he's yeah. not the Benicio Del Toro that we know, like the Oscar Oscar-nominated yeah. actor. So there's only very small bits. I think he said that he had long hair before he was cast, and he had it cut short for the film. And that was like the only interesting thing I saw in that book about about him. But um, he's fantastic yeah. in this film. Yeah, he's great. He's definitely mm-hmm. one of the standout characters in Lice of the Kill. Yeah. As I said when I was talking about the scariest characters, he's he's it works really well for. I mean, he's always like a Daniel Craig villain. You can see Daniel Craig having a proper fight with him, and you know him doing not very nice things to Craig which is the same style as what Dalton was going for they were trying to look for baddies that were actually scary and real and kind of proper threat and not just you know fantastical henchmen but yeah I, and the, another interesting thing I read about it was that um, there's been some suggestion that there were homoerotic tendencies between Sanchez towards Dario and then uh, Robert um, DeVee spoke about it. And he said, uh, you read it, you read it absolutely correctly. Yes, that was done intentionally on my part and was not in the script per se. First, that is part of the culture Sanchez came from, expressing affection. But I want to take it a little further with a play between Sanchez and Dario and have a suggestion of that. It was also organic because of the friendship between Benicio and myself. So, um, yeah, interesting bit of info from uh, from Robert there. But yeah, aside from that, I'm not going to, going to del toro's career but yeah i think um he's he's a very interesting henchman and not many people that you could compare across the whole of the bond series to to his character yeah i think the first film i remember seeing del toro in is uh the usual suspects yeah that mm. was his breakthrough big yeah. breakthrough one wasn't yeah. it? The mainstream he was just exploded onto the scene after that he was such a weird i mean he's not in the film that much but such a bizarre performance from him in that film just really announced himself didn't it yeah he's um i always forget but del toro is a funny one because i mean he's done so many films and i don't know how many awards he's won but he's definitely been in some of the biggest films that have been released over the past 20 years or so but i struggle to remember all the films he's been in because he de- does tend to play those roles where he's a little bit more subtle and he's not like the main character but he, even in stuff like Guardians of the Galaxy. He's one of the standout characters in it. Oh yeah, I forgot he's in that. Sicario. He's great in that. Sorry, yeah, just one more, one more personal anecdote. I've met Del Toro. I interviewed him for the Last Jedi. Oh, here we go. Uh, Star yeah. Wars as well. At Star Wars as well. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I was so excited to meet him because he's obviously an icon. But he was so relaxed. He was almost horizontal. I don't know whether he was jet lagged or or what. But um, yeah, was he nice? Uh, yeah, I think so. It was just he was just a. He was just a very unusual character. Like he was very, um, yeah, sort of like intense, but like laid back and intense at the same time, like a Michael Shannon type character. Mm, yeah. But, uh, and, and did you ask him about License to Kill? I did not. No. <laughs> oh, missed opportunity. Oh, I mean, wasted your opportunity. To find ahead with that. <laughs> I know. If I only had known that, uh, yeah, four <laughs> years later I'd be uh, doing this podcast. Yeah. But there you go. That's my little um, Del Toro anecdote. For what it's worth. More of those, please. <laughs> uh, okay, so that is Dario. D is for Davies, Peter Davies. Peter Davies is a film editor and he works alongside or often works alongside with John Grover on the James Bond films. His credits include Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, A View to a Kill and The Living Daylights. His other credits beyond Bond include Ken Russell's Lair of the White Worm. Have either of you seen that? No. It's a bonkers bonkers movie with Hugh Grant in it. Fire, Ice and Dynamite. Fantastic film, phenomenal. You know that one. I'm lying, it's not very good, but it's got Roger Roger in it. it. And (laughs) Wing Commander, the video game movie. Oh, based on the game. Yes, yeah. I have seen that, yeah. yeah. So Peter Davies joined the Bond series as a junior editor and he was brought on board by John Glenn, having worked with John Glenn on Escape to Athena, because obviously John Glenn was the editor at that point on those films. So he joined the department after Escape to Athena. That's another Roger Moore film. So his first credit came on Moonraker, 
And this is really interesting. I only found this one reference to this in the book, uh, Some Kind of Hero, the A.J. Chowdhury, uh, Matthew Field book. But he, what his job on Moonraker was to ascend, assemble a blooper reel for the cast and crew. And this was known on set as the Wanker film. Okay, so... <laughs> right, yeah, okay. <laughs> so... Richard Keel, talking about shooting the film uh, Moonraker, said that when they were shooting on the space station set, there was this gag that they played on the cast or the crew. I can't remember who. Where the, It was basically they were in the space station and all of a sudden this little Martian pops up in a green outfit, waving and then cleaning the glass. And obviously they filmed the cast's reaction to that happening. And so the camera crew knew what was going to happen. So they turned over on it. Uh, and this is now Peter Davies talking on Moonraker. We were shooting stuff for the Wanker film. So when I first got to Paris, I was it was towards the end of November. And my first full editing job was compiling the footage for the Wanker film using outtakes and scenes that Roger was always messing about in. And there was extra footage of crew, which was secretly filmed so that nobody, nobody escaped this blooper reel. He said that it was great fun to do. No expense was spared in the making of it. And we had a full house when showing it just before the Christmas break. And it was very well received. Even Prince Charles saw it. So they had assembled... They call it the Wanker... The Wanker film. Real for Wanker film. What, does, does it explain why it's called the Wanker film? No, I don't know. I guess it's probably the crew playing tricks on the cast. And they always call them wankers. I don't know. But um, <laughs> it sounds quite fun. I really want to see it. If there's, um, yeah, why is it not on the DVD extra? Yes, yeah. That's- but there's very little I could find out about Peter Davies. There is a vid- uh, an interview with him in MI6 Confidential, which those guys ha- kindly pointed out for him. I'm just waiting to get hold of my copy of that. But um, the only other thing I could find was that on the living daylights, Peter Davies was on location uh, while they were shooting. And Arthur Worcester, who was the second unit director, cinematographer, he gave Peter the responsibility to direct some of the scenes that were needed of the Jeep driving down Gibraltar Rock with the Jeep on fire and Bond on top. Um, And he says, I can't remember exactly why, but I offered to do the driving. The associate producer, Tom Pevsner, was not happy when he found out, but John defended me and said, without me doing it, we wouldn't have a sequence. So that was it. Um, And that is all I could find about Peter Davies. But he is still working to this day, I understand. He makes a lot of straight-to-DVD stuff. One film I saw he'd worked on was a film directed by Martin Kemp called Top Boy. So I think you can sort of imagine the sort of films he's working on. But That was pretty popular, wasn't it, Top Boy? I don't know, was it? So or Top I, Dog? I, I think it's called it. Top Dog, maybe. But, um, oh, not Top Boy. Yeah. But that's Peter Davies, and I'm hoping to get more information on him, which we'll probably do as an addendum at some point down the line. But, um, yeah, that's um, Peter Davies. So was he the one responsible for the pigeon that takes a double look at Bond on the gondola? <laughs> maybe. I think that's a John Glenn. Uh, actually, yeah. Because it would be in the edit suite that that yeah. takes place. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think it's probably more a John Glenn thing, that. Hmm. He liked his pigeons and his and his birds, his animals, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and his Tarzan noises. D is for Dawson, Anthony Dawson. So Anthony Dawson was a Scottish actor born in 1916. That seems so long ago, doesn't it? And he made a name for himself for playing mainly villainous roles in more than uh, well over 50 screen productions but we're covering him because he played professor dent in dr no and he played blofeld in from russia with love and thunderball sort of which we've covered before but i'll get on to that so he went to rada that's how he started off he went to rada and then he was put out to world war Two. so he it was serviced, you know, served for the country in World War Two as well. And then when he got back, he started work as a stage actor. He met Terence Young. That is where he gets his in uh, further down the line. His first on-screen role was as a 27-year-old, and he was in a mystery romance. It's called They Met in the Dark. Anyone seen it? It's got James Mason in it. Nope. 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 It's, it's very old. So, and then he did a, a war uh, adventure directed by Terence Young in 1950 called "They Were Not Divided," 
which also starred Christopher Lee and Desmond Llewellyn. So Dawson would, he then went on to do a, quite a few Terence Young productions as well. And then he moved to America in the, in the uh, early 1950s to try and uh, make it out there and break America. And he appeared in a, a Broadway play called Dial M for Murder. Heard of that? Yes. Yes. And uh, playing C.A. Swan and Captain Lesgate. So he also played it in the film as well. Yes, he's very good in that. So he, he's written an autobiography, but he's not, he, didn't, he didn't publish it before he died there are snippets so I've got a couple of quotes sadly no Bond quotes so anyone out there if you've got any more information about Anthony Dawson regarding Bond let us know but these these are to do with his dealings with Hitchcock and working on Dial for Murder so he, he spoke about getting the part I had never met Hitchcock before and yet he was about to do me the most fantastic good turn I could imagine in that wonderful fat man's cockney voice he said slowly drooping every word separately as though he had all day. Tony, I just called to let you know that I want you in my picture, so you're quite safe to make yourself a nice deal. What could I say? I mumbled my thanks and I put the phone down, feeling rather dazed, electrified, stunned, all of these. The full impact of this call from Hitch was very soon to come home to me. So yeah, this time he's done three or four films, so this is a pretty big deal, you know, not long after going over to, to America. And then Hitchcock hosted a dinner party and that's where he met the rest of his co-stars and he met Grace Kelly. And he said, at the end of the evening, I found myself escorting her home. She was staying at the Chateau Maman, a small classy apartment house on the strip. It was very warm. There was moonlight. There were stars reflecting on the surface of the pool. There were tall, dark cypress trees with cicadas chirruping. And again, how did it happen? We found ourselves swimming together in the tepid waters. I don't know how some things happen. They just do. They just seem so natural that no other course is possible. The next evening, we had a date. Wow. So we had a date with Grace Kelly. No That's pretty, pretty good stuff, isn't it? And um, so beautifully red as well. Redhead. Put a tear to my eye. <laughs> so evocative. <laughs> the moonlight shimmering on the surface of that pool. <laughs> so in the early 1960s, he then returns from the US to the UK... And Terence Young casts him in Doctor No, where he plays Professor Dent, and that's probably his biggest role. It's where most people will recognise him from. I mean, he's he's part of one of the most iconic scenes in in the whole Bond franchise, and he's also part of he take he's the only one that is in that set, that fantastic Ken Adams set as well, with just the the circular hole in the grid with the tarantula, yeah, tarantula, yeah. So relatively little screen time but big impact i would say yeah great that. face for it definitely fantastic face and you can see why he played a lot of villains in his um in his career um and so he was then brought back onto bond productions and this time it wasn't his face it was just his hands and he was holding a cat uh his voice wasn't even used i think we covered this Yep. B for Blofeld, yeah. Yeah, in the Blofeld episode, that's it. And they put a question mark at the end of From Russia With Love, so it said Blofeld, and it was just a question mark. Uh, and that that's that was a mystery for quite a while, apparently, until they did some, some digging. The production controller of um, E.ON, Reg Berkshire, he researched it and had a look into this, and he said, on examination of contracts and ledgers, it appears that Anthony Dawson played the part and was dubbed by Eric Pullman. So mm. they did quite... Well, I mean, a day of no internet, I guess it's a bit easier to keep stuff like that under wraps. But still pretty pretty big deal, isn't it? And then he went on to do the same uh, again in, in Thunderball. In terms of non-Bond, he um, he was in a, a show called Danger Man for four episodes. Yeah. Um, uh, he was in OK Connery. Haven't watched it yet. With with a lot of other Bond yeah. actors as well, which it's uh, on YouTube if, if, for free if you want to check him out on it. I think in America it's on Amazon Prime. Is it? Yeah. There you go. You can check it out. Interestingly, on a, a side note, Neil, Neil Connery is dubbed. That's uh, mm. yeah. So he's got an American accent, and they hired him because uh, he sounded like his brother. I mean, it's madness, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, and he he worked with uh, Terence Young on other productions. 
Triple Cross in 66, Inchon in 1982, The Jigsaw Man 1983. And then he worked on a lot of Italian films during the 70s and 80s. Uh, he relocated there. Uh, his notable one is Rosalino Paterno Soldato, 1970, which starred Martin Landau and Peter Falk. And um, yeah, he was working right up until his death in 1992. His last role was a bit part in something called Selling Hitler, which is a miniseries about the fraudulent sale of Hitler's diaries. So, And then he passed away in Sussex in January 1992 at the age of 75. So yeah, he had quite a long career, but never really hit the heights of uh, that role, I would say, in, in Doctor No. There we go. That's, that's Anthony Dawson. Anthony Dawson. That wraps up our shortest episode yet, I think. Unless you've got anything else to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, that's fantastic. I think um, that all, all there is left to say is that our next episode, we are in the realm of Mr. Timothy Dalton. Ooh, we're there already. I we're didn't there realize. already. We're there wow. already. I would say this. This is probably. In my top five of the whole podcast, things that we could cover, this is the most, the one that I'm most excited about researching. Yeah, it's going to be Here good. Go, then. It's going to be good. Um, yeah. I know a lot of people out there, are big fan of the Timothy Dalton era and his films, but we're going to be going into in depth in his career and his Bond films and what have you. I imagine it'll be a two-part episode again, like we have done with Piers Brosnan and Sean Connery and Daniel Craig. You can find those episodes um, with this podcast wherever you're listening to now so yeah go back and listen we're hoping to have some guests on as well to talk about dalton um about his his sort of renaissance in the world of bond fans so that's gonna be really exciting um and then yeah we've got even more exciting stuff to come in the letter d so um lots to look forward to yeah so if people want to get hold of us how do they email us podcast at jamesbond uk. and if they want to hit us up on the socials brendan hit us at jamesbond a to z simple as that on instagram facebook uh, and twitter yeah we'd really appreciate it if you're listening on apple um to leave us a, a rating and a review it all helps to spread the word of the james bond a to z um and we love getting your emails and your messages so uh, yeah find us on social media and um yeah stay in touch but until next time james bond will return in the james bond a to z thanks a lot ciao James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy, and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley, with music by Tom Ingomels, and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.